Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. Today, Jeremy and I will be answering some questions that came in from our listeners and our readers, so stick around for that later in the episode. But first, we're going to delve into the sounds that help our brains turn off and chill out. I'm talking about ambient music, which is having a huge moment right now from both a musical and cultural perspective. And to talk about all of it, I'm here with Reviews Editor Jeremy Larson and Contributing Editor Andy Cush. Hello, friends. Hey, Pooja. How's it going out there? I'm not sure if we should be extra loud today to make up for the fact that we'll be playing sort of soft ambient music or we should sort of sink in Uh to the whole quiet NPR, ASMR vibe of the ambient show that we're doing. Yeah, whispers only. How's this sound? (laughs) You sound great. Thank you. So I want to just get the most obvious thing out of the way, which is that it's not necessarily a huge surprise that so many people have been turning to ambient music in the past couple of years. Like famously, it is a genre of music that is relaxing and soothing and that you can kind of just melt into. And, you know, with everything that's been going on, we've got a climate crisis, we've got a global pandemic, we've got political upheaval. We're all losing our damn minds. Um, This is not shocking to anyone, right? Yeah, definitely not. And to that, I would add, it's also music that works really well in a solitary um, headphones context. And Mm -hmm. sadly, we're kind of living more alone in our own homes than we ever have before. And I think part of the boom is, is reflective of that sort of atomization and isolation. I have kind of a story, speaking of sort of living in our homes, I was I was um, co-working with my wife who was working upstairs, and um, oftentimes I will throw my headphones down from my ears and say something like, God, that sucks. Um, and she'll just <laughs> oh, like no. remark about it. <laughs> How often are you doing that at work? <laughs> it's not often. You know, <laughs> I, sometimes I, I feel like I'm reacting to music. And then I was walking sort of around downstairs one day, and I hear my wife say, this Moby Ambient album sucks. Just like she didn't know, she wasn't talking to me, she wasn't saying it to anyone. (laughs) It just sort of like was this impulsive, she felt compelled to say it out loud. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned this because so much of the ambient music boom has been from playlisting and kind of that route of focus music, calming music, sleeping music. Andy, you wrote this great feature a couple of months ago about the specific streaming boom of ambient music, which I want to get into and talk about the playlisting and everything else. But before we get into that, I think it would be useful to just kind of explain 
what it is that we're talking about because even by definition ambient music has so many like kind of both vague and galaxy brain definitions to it so could you maybe get into a little bit of like the origins or advent of ambient music yeah totally um usually critics will point to Brian Eno's Music for Airports and also his, uh, from before that, he had an album called Discrete Music as kind of like the birthplace of Ambient, or at least the first time that it was being categorized as such. And in the liner notes to Music for Airports, which was called Ambient One Music for Airports, Mm -hmm. and it ended up being the first in a series of Ambient albums that he did, he kind of delivers a manifesto about what his conception of ambient music is and what it should be. And the famous phrase from that is that it should be as ignorable as it is interesting. I think the music for airports thing was kind of like a perverse joke, but also kind of serious. The idea that like this album that he had made, could serve as the soundtrack to this kind of like famously stressful, unpleasant place and Mm -hmm. uh, bring people some measure of peace and calm while they're there. It was as much about ideas as it was about sound, I think. And then in the 80s, it sort of came lightly associated with New Age and and sort of like things that sort of exist in shops where you can buy little fountains for your home. I would love to talk about some contemporary artists who are making ambient music and kind of what distinguishes them and what makes them interesting and exciting. And you talked about a lot in your piece, Andy, so I'd I'd love to hear just a couple from you. Yeah, so one of the things that I was trying to get at in the piece was this idea that this is music that just makes you calm when you're frustrated about your shitty job and like it's an aid to the grind of capitalism like the oil that keeps those gears moving and i'm not sure i fully subscribe to that idea but i do think there's something to the fact that some ambient music is more just purely soothing than at least what i'm interested in as a listener so the stuff that i tend to gravitate to tries to break that mold a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one place where that's happening a lot, there's a label called West Mineral Limited. And so uh, one record that I really like from that label uh, is called Significant Soil. The artist has a really funny name. He goes by Mr. Water Wet. (laughs) (laughs) A track in particular that I like from that record is called I Saw the Green Flash. And You know, it does have these elements that have the same kind of like bomb like quality that we associate with ambient music. It's got these kind of swelling synth strings, but each time they loop, they come sort of slightly like out of alignment with each other and then back in. Mm -hmm. And then there's like this percussion that sort of drifts in and out. And there's a real just like sense of possibility in that music and a real sense, I guess, of experimentation. But 
but that's an album that really feels experimental in like the true sense of I'm going to try something without knowing what the outcome is. So you have these just like really unusual combinations of sounds that sometimes kind of lock into something really satisfying and sometimes feel a little bit more disorienting, but then ultimately uh, like it still feels like something you can settle into in the way that we think of as ambient. I think the word ambient itself has become kind of a genre modifier, like pop, right? Mm. There's like ambient techno, ambient jazz, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ambient pop, ambient rock. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that idea was just like, oh, we are using rock instruments to make ambient music. And Mm -hmm. techno, the idea is like, what if techno was just quiet and there was no drums? How do you consider this music critically and differentiate the different sounds and movements within this genre when they're so frequently purposefully meant to be not at the forefront, right? Like not something that you're actively considering all the time. I think a lot of it comes down to movement within a piece, the subtlety with which they are composed, whether it asks anything of you. I think some ambient music asks very little of you, and yeah. that's and that's great, and maybe that's the artist's intent. But some ambient music I find is very confrontational. Yes, um, in its in its <laughs> yeah. silence, in its dissonance, in its. It can ambient music can be very evocative of emotions to people because you are often left to sit with your own thoughts mm-hmm. in it, and I think that can create a lot of feelings. And I think like the more you are in touch with that with yourself, then sometimes the more effective the piece can be. Some of my favorite ambient music is by this artist Perilla. Mm-hmm. Their last album was called "How Much Time Is It Between You and Me." And it is like glitchy and droney and you can hear static and it's like very futuristic and it kind of keeps you on edge. It does the opposite (laughs) of what I associate broadly with ambient music. And I also was thinking about they made our year end list in 2020, um, the KMRU album Peel, Mm -hmm. which is just like stunningly beautiful and these like elongated tones and Mm -hmm. whatever. But then there are these intense moments of climax. You can feel your body reacting to something without noticing it, you know, and and I feel like that is the most effective of the genre for me. Another great example of that sort of ambient music that really keeps you on your toes is that Ula album Foam that came out late last year, where there's all these unexpected silences or there's sounds that are sort of being chopped up really small and then they're allowed to breathe and stretch out a little bit and you kind of expect to be able to settle into that and then it goes straight back into this more kind of glitchy, demolished sounding thing. It does like sound like ambient music. Mm-hmm. It's spacey. The like the harmonies are pretty consonant and sweet, 
but the effect of it is a lot more, well, it's like agitating and soothing at the same time. Andy, I wanted to go back and ask you a question about your piece really quick. Um, yeah. One of the things I really loved about it is that there is this inherent tension in the people you talk to and you talk to musicians and label heads. And the tension is between music that serves to accompany life and music that is meant to be listened to on its own. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if artists that you talk to have just sort of resigned themselves to accept that, yes, my music will be played simply in coffee shops and not sat and listened to reverently cross-legged on the floor with three candles burning (laughs) around it. And do you think that the latter is kind of like a precious way of approaching how music is listened to, especially ambient music? Or do you think that the idea that music is meant to accompany something kind of like dilutes the artist's intent? Yeah. So one of the people that I talked to is Emily Sprague, who's in an interesting position of being a very accomplished ambient musician, as well as a songwriter and vocalist and guitar player in the band Florist. And from her perspective, the idea that someone might discover her music on some sort of mood or focus playlist, and that it might simply accompany them as they are going through a situation in their day is not only just something that she's accepted, but something that she's happy about. And when I started writing that piece, I maybe was kind of looking down my nose at that kind of listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, But hearing her perspective on it sort of changed my mind a little bit. And, you know, I, I would be sad if the only way that that people are listening to music is in this passive way. But hopefully, you know, there's room in people's lives or at least in the lives of people who who care a lot about music to do both. And I guess one of the radical things about ambient music when it was first being conceptualized is that very mode of listening. You know, like mm-hmm. Eno talks about like that's baked into the to the DNA of ambient music and another one of my favorite of an older era of ambient music is Hiroshi Yoshimura. And that's his whole thing too. He, he referred to his music as environmental music. His idea, sort of drawn from Eno and also drawn from Eric Satie, who's like an older composer who talked about furniture music, quote unquote, is that this music could just be something that is a part of the environment in which you're living your life. It's like architecture or something where you're not necessarily sitting in close contemplation of the building that you're in all the time. Maybe sometimes you are, but a lot of the times you're just walking through it and yet the ways in which it's laid out are having all these impacts on your mood and your thoughts that like mm-hmm. you're not necessarily even aware of or you're not aware that that the architecture is the thing that's doing that to you. I mean, I think that's a pretty amazing mm-hmm. thing that music can do. Ultimately, I think it's cool that like that mode of listening can coexist with, you know, going to a concert or sitting cross-legged in front of your record player with your incense and candles burning. Right. I, for the record, I don't know anyone who listens to ambient music that way. I know. 
I don't. I, I don't <laughs> Except for maybe you. <laughs> I do. I get. I get close to that sometimes. Uh huh. Maybe uh-huh. without. Maybe without the candles. <laughs> um. So can we actually delve a little bit deeper into the idea of how the streaming boom has affected like the genre and the future of the genre like there are plenty of good things the fact that emily is saying you know great someone is discovering my music through playlisting that i was not involved with fantastic or like a smaller artist might be able to get more visibility or more money through streaming i mean no one's making any money through streaming but there are some wins what are what are the very bad sides of this yeah totally so Streaming platforms have kind of created a market incentive for ambient music that didn't exist before because they've figured out this thing of playlists for studying and playlists for watering your plants and playlists for going to sleep to, where all of a sudden a piece of soothing, minimal music is like a marketable commodity that it wasn't before. And I was interested in to what degree is that impacting the way that musicians actually are approaching their musical practice. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, are are people feeling like, oh, I got to make my ambient record now and get rich. And what I found was that really they're not. And it's because in part, I think what you just said, that no one's making money on streaming. (laughs) Um, And so like another person I talked to who's like Emily Sprague, someone who makes records in a more kind of rock mode and a more ambient mode is uh, Ben Saradin. And, you know, he made this record called Cicada Waves, uh, basically field recording he made while on an artist residency of himself playing like quite minimal uh, piano improvisations with also kind of the nature sounds around him making their way onto the recording. And despite like the fact that his previous record was very acclaimed, we had put it on our best rock albums of whatever year it came out, 2020, I think, list. Mm-hmm. And that Cicada Waves was a comparatively low-key release. That became by far his most popular uh, release on streaming because it got put on playlists like music for plants and stuff Uh (laughs) and he had just gotten his royalty check from spotify for the past like six months when we talked and even though he had this big boom and he's his tracks are doing like six figures of plays or whatever he made like four hundred dollars or something right right but the the thing that i did come to as a criticism of this whole kind of ecosystem that i still feel is true is that some of these playlists that are focused on enhancing your mood or providing a soundtrack to these mundane daily tasks, I think they do run the risk of putting people who have very complex bodies of work as musicians into a box in which they don't necessarily fit or Mm -hmm. that provides a really skewed view of their music to somebody who might be encountering it there and only there. An example I was thinking about recently is uh, Lucrecia Adult, who make some music that could be categorized as ambient, but then also makes really wild songwriter music and stuff that's more like noise um, and is to me like one of the most singular and exciting artists working today. And her 
most popular song on Spotify is a track called uh, No Tiempo. It's the first track on her newest album. And it's definitely on the more beautiful, palatable, ambient adjacent side of her work. And the reason it seems to me from looking around that it's the most popular is it does get put on these playlists. Again, like Music for Plants, where mm-hmm. it's currently the first track on the playlist. And, you know, some of the other stuff on that playlist is literally like stock music that's titled like background right. music for watering your right. garden or whatever. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. so it, it would be a shame to me if someone encountered Lucrecia Dalt there and then went on to think of her as like, oh, she's that nice plant lady, uh-huh. you know, rather than <laughs> someone who's capable of conjuring like awesome power with her music. I mean, though you can be both. I'm yeah, going to be totally, a Lucretia totally. adult screaming, do the plant song. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. me. I mean, one really dark thing about this that I was texting with Andy about earlier and has just been fascinating me generally is like, you know, we saw in 2020 a bunch of huge artists started getting commissioned to make music for Calm and Headspace, which are these apps that are supposed to help you meditate, that are supposed to help you like journal, go to sleep, whatever. And I opened up Calm. The opening page on Calm has a thing called the Sleep Remix Series, which features Casey Musgraves, Post Malone, Shawn Mendes, Ariana Grande, Janae Aiko, who have done curation or remixes of their own work to be fitting into the sleep music series. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. And to me, I'm just like, you know, this thing that was rooted in spirituality, that was rooted in stillness and finding calm is now becoming this insane pop mainstream mental health, like profiteering (laughs) situation. And that's not, you know, like Janaeiko is an artist who has been very vocal about her issues with mental health and some of how like her work has influenced her ability to tour and things like that. So this is not to say that these artists are not equipped to be speaking on this, but it is just interesting to see that it's a locked part of the app. Um, You have to be a certain tier subscriber for it. And just seeing this move in that way is fascinating. I love that if I can get 100 meditation points, I can unlock an Ariana Grande (laughs) sleep track. (laughs) That's that's how this thing should be working. That's how the music industry should be working, I think. You also have that other aspect of like like how do these artists make a living? Like how can you afford to just create this zen music when you'd like to ideally be an artist for the rest of your life? And so then you have to you need these playlists, you need streaming services, you need the Calm app to mm-hmm. be able to create this <laughs> this music that is about the sort of like silencing of ego. But it's so dependent on like commerce and capitalism to make it happen. Whew. Well, let me let me ask. Let's let me leave you with one final question, Andy. Like, what do you think? Have we hit our ambient music boom apex, or what happens from here? Any guesses? Any thoughts? Sure. Uh, any sort of musician basically 
could look at the music they make and say, what might happen if I peeled some of these layers away and I made it more minimal and I made it maybe more about atmosphere than it is about melody or lyrics or whatever it is. You have like a band like Sus who call their music Mm. ambient country even. Like you could call the production work of Clams Casino, like ambient hip hop. Mm-hmm. There was that whole mm-hmm. movement of cloud rap, like mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago, that was basically an ambient hip hop movement. You have ambient techno, you have what we now call ambient jazz. Um, and so I think that there is still plenty of, of really interesting ambient music yet to be made, but perhaps the most interesting of it isn't going to end up on the Calm app or isn't going <laughs> to end up on Spotify music for doing your midterm studying playlist or whatever. But I still think that there's a lot of, of room for people who are in the margins to make stuff that's genuinely uh, exciting and challenging and new. I agree. I'm excited. Well, now that we've moved into our whisper voices, thank you, Andy, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. And when we come back, Jeremy and I will attempt to answer your questions. Are you ready? I know I'm not. Um, <laughs> cool. But I'm going to flail around and pretend I'm ready. Cool. <laughs> you come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Jeremy, we're trying something new. It's the Pitchfork Mailbag. I have an idea for a name for this section. It's called It's Time to Face the Music Readers. Nice. We'll workshop that. Okay, Um, great. So anyway, we put out this call on social and got a ton of questions from listeners and readers, which Jeremy and I have not had the opportunity to see until right this second. Let's see how this goes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Give give me one. I'll I'll do the All right. I'm going to just go from the top. Okay. Have you, Jeremy Larson, ever ended up loving a song that you originally hated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think about this a lot because when you when you hate a song, you expend a lot of energy toward it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you end up there's a lot of emotion mm-hmm. towards there and and then you start asking yourself, why do I hate this song? Like, am I the problem or is the song the mm-hmm. problem? What give me the song. Okay, well, this mostly happens with pop music. Yeah. Like it's you. It's hi. You're the problem. It's you. I'm still still not there with antihero. Um, there's a song by Jack Antonoff. Um, oh yes, and can't wait. And it's called 45, and it's off the latest Bleachers album called "Take the Sadness Out of Saturday Night."
Um, so I spend a lot of time with with it, and I, when you spend a lot of time with an album, you have a lot of feelings about it, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of stuff I didn't like about it at first, and then you just, I don't know, there's there's something about him. He's just m- diabolically charming, and he's diabolically good at pop music. Oh boy! And I think like for every sort of ounce of energy I expend saying that I do not like Jack Antonoff and what he's doing to <laughs> pop music, there is an equal and opposite force telling me that it's actually quite good mm-hmm. and that you should just accept it. Um, here's one for you. Um, what album have you wished you could go back and re-rate? Okay, I have a couple off the bat. 1975, I like it when you sleep for you are so beautiful and yet unaware of it. Is that the full title? Um, I think I think you got a 97% on that Yeah, one. okay. Their 2016 album, the one with somebody else on it, mm-hmm. which is a perfect song. Mm-hmm. I believe Pitchfork had a grudge against that band, had a grudge against that particular style of pop before my time. Yeah. We gave it a 6.5. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a top two 1975 album for mm-hmm. me. So I'd bump that up by two full points. 8.5. I would I would also say and this is a recent one, mm-hmm. so this one might be a little bit touchy. Mm-hmm. But I think we underrated Hotels by Jasmine Sullivan. Oh, sure, yeah. Which I think should have been in the nines. Don't forget to come and pick up your Don't leave no pieces. You need to hurry and pick up your but, you know, doing things in real time, opinions change, things grow on you, things become more impactful the more you listen to it. Absolutely. I hate this question. <laughs> I, I like, I like, I'm glad you answered it because I, being asked that question is it makes my skin crawl. I don't Jeremy, know I got a question for you. Okay. And I know that you know the answer to this one. Oh, good. What's the worst score Pitchfork has ever given to an album? Well, sure, it's 0.0. We've given several 0.0s. Famously, Mm -hmm. we gave some to uh, one to Liz Fair, one to Travis Morrison of Dismemberment Plan. Um, Sonic Youth, I believe, got a (laughs) 0.0. It's it's hard. I I like to talk about zeros because that that, it really insinuates that the album has no worth. Uh That's a really hard thing. I, I think at some point when you're thinking about scores, it goes from 10 very positive to 5 neutral but then anything under five, it's sort of like it's somehow detrimental mm-hmm. to that, like it's toxic to what's around it. Mm-hmm. And and it has an increasingly toxic effect. <laughs> so so it, it's hard to – there's just not that much music out there like that anymore. And I don't think we have the like critical language to say that the music we're talking about now is like so utterly toxic that it should not be even engaged with. That said, Mm -hmm. our lowest score during my tenure was also an album that you reviewed, which was Greta Van Fleet's album, which clocked in at a 1.6. And then I think more recently, Jack Harlow's album, Come Home, The Kids Miss You, got a 2.9. And... I think both of those scores are exactly right. <laughs> no notes on those. 
I was just looking at my um, this is just Instagram showed me a picture of two people front row at a Greta Van Fleet concert holding up a sign that said, "We teepeed Jeremy Larson's house." <gasps> yeah, send me that photo. Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, that was a uh, those those are those are the low ones. Uh, I don't think we lowballed any of them. When reviewing a new album, a big one like Beyonce or Taylor, does the whole Pitchfork staff listen or is it just the reviewer? And uh, can you sort of explain like what happens when that album gets in our hands? Yeah, we I will say we think more is more in terms of ears on a piece of music. Um, part of the like benefit of having so many people on staff with different tastes and different expertises in music and different genre knowledge in our staff is that when we're listening to something collectively, there's a lot of interesting call-outs of samples or references or reminders of when something has been teased in like their personal lives or in their like larger context of work. Um, and so it feels like we're having like 20 brains kind of unpack a piece of music. That said, when it comes to the actual review and the score, I think there's a little hive of editors, which include Jeremy and myself. And then often either the editor who is most versed in that piece of music or like a subset of the senior edit crew that kind of discuss how the album lands for us mm-hmm. in terms of scoring. Um, it's kind of rare that that among the editors, we are on entirely different pages. Yeah. It, it would be fascinating, but I don't think we've had that happen. Like, oh, we've, had, we've had it happen. We, guess, we have yeah. had it happen, but it kind of tends to be the best argument mm-hmm. wins out. Right. Well, this was fun. Loved it. Great hanging, Jeremy. We should do this again. I was so great hanging with you. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can find Andy Kush at KushAC on Twitter, and you can read his feature titled Inside the Ambient Music Streaming Boom at Pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.